During a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world um, debated what, if anything, was unique in the Christian faith. And they began eliminating possibilities. Was it the Incarnation? And then after some discussion, some of them said, well, no, because various other religions had different versions of God appearing in human form. Was it the resurrection? Again, some of them, after discussion, realized that there are accounts of return from death in some religions. And the debate went on for quite some time until the Christian scholar and philosopher C.S. Lewis entered and he was wondering what the fuss was all about and what this uh, commotion was going on in this room. And he asked them the question. They said, well, we're discussing what's unique to the Christian faith. He said, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. And after discussion, the conference agreed with C.S. Lewis that the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge Gratis, no strings attached, is absolutely unique to the Christian faith. The Buddhist has an eightfold path to spiritual enlightenment. The Hindu has a doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of the law. Each of these is a way of their own religion getting and earning God's approval and gaining spiritual enlightenment. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional, which is what we call grace. Grace is unique to Christianity. And do excuse the metaphor, please, but grace is our trump card as Christians. Grace is the best gift that we have to give to the world. Grace not only is to be proclaimed by the church, by Christian people, that we proclaim this message, that we cannot earn God's salvation and we certainly don't deserve it. But we also display grace in our actions, loving those who don't necessarily deserve our love, as well as those who are undeserving. And by doing that, we are following the example of our Heavenly Father. Last week we discussed this subject together and we observed that love that goes upwards is worship, love that goes outwards is affection, but love that stoops, that condescending love, that love is grace. And grace means that God loves us because he loves us, because he loves us, because he loves us. Um, I shared with you last week the statement from author Philip Yancey. It's a very helpful statement, this, that there is nothing that we can do to cause God to love us more than he does, and there is nothing that we can do to cause God to love us less than he does. And at the end of my talk last week, I asked you, just for a few moments, to reflect on that verse, on, on, on his words. And I just want for a few moments here this morning right at the start of what I have to say, just to ponder on these words and to reason them out together. You see, God's love is perfect. And therefore, if God's love is perfect, it cannot be improved upon. It cannot be upgraded. It cannot be enhanced in any way. He loves us perfectly, Because not only is he a God who loves, or a God who is loving, but he is a God who is love. 
He is the epitome of love. He defines love. He sets the standard of what love truly is. So, if we were to read our Bibles every day for the next year, and get up early and have three hours prayer every morning before we go to work, and give away 50% of what we own for the kingdom causes, and lead 20 people to know Jesus before the end of the month, and he have not got long, He cannot love us any more than he loves us just now. And the reason for that is that God's love for us is perfect. He cannot love us perfecter. And you're laughing because there is no such word as perfecter. And the reason there is no such word as perfecter because there is no such concept as being more perfect than perfect. Are you with me? So, uh, to propose that God would love us more would suggest that his love wasn't perfect in the first place. And I'm not finished yet. If he were to love us less because there is something that we have done To upset him in some way. Perhaps we've shouted at the wife or kicked the cat. Or not read our Bible for ten days or not prayed for three weeks. Or worse. Then, if he were to love us any less for any of that. Then that would make God fickle and and, and, unchangeable. And his love for us would then be conditional, not unconditional. His love for us would then be merited, not unmerited. And that's why I think that this statement is such an amazing statement. That love is essential to God's true identity. Last week, and we looked at this verse together in Romans chapter 5 verse 8. says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I would say, underline those two words in your Bible, still sinners. You know, that's quite amazing, really. That before any of us ever bowed the knee to Jesus, before any of us ever confessed Jesus as Lord, before we were ever baptized, before we joined the church, God loved us. When we blasphemed his name, when we ridiculed his people, when we mocked those who believed in his existence, even then, he loved us. And if that is true of us, of you and me, then it is also true of everyone. It is true of our unbelieving families. It is true of that spouse, that husband, that wife who presently doesn't believe. It is true of those children. It is true of that parent. It is true of that sibling. It is true of that best friend that you have. God's love is perfect and he loves them too with a perfect love. For God has no favourites. 
But again, isn't that what Jesus told us? We've already heard this morning. And, and, and thank you so much for Simon for sharing what you did in that part earlier. You know, the, we often call it, don't we, the greatest verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And sometimes I feel that the following verse somehow hides in the shadow of verse 16. But I don't believe it should. For God did not send his own son into the world to condemn the world. But to save what? The world. Through him. So who does God love? Does he love just certain individuals? Some special in crowd? You see, some claim that God only loves the elect. But my Bible tells me, the words of Jesus, for God so loved the world, that the Son was sent to save the world, which seems pretty inclusive to me. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter also gives us, tells us about the Lord's impartiality. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. But who? Everyone. Everyone to come to repentance. Another verse, 1 Timothy. Paul writes to his spiritual son Timothy. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 4. Speaks of God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, I've come across some theologians who seem to be a little bit embarrassed by this verse. They say such things as, God is God and God always gets what he wants. He's God after all. So, since it would appear that all men are not saved, either God doesn't always get what he wants, or this verse must mean something else. And that's what many of them believe. And they interpret the words here, all men To mean actually God wants all men, not in in terms of individuals, but in terms of groups of men to be saved. That is, God wants the Jews as well as the Gentiles, blacks as well as whites, Europeans, Asians, Africans, slave and free, male and female. That God is not prejudiced in any way against any body or any nation or any race. But they struggle to believe that this verse could actually mean what it says. That God actually wants all men. And that is a generic term. Obviously that is people, all people, everywhere to come to know him. What do I say about their views? Well, for what, it, for what it's worth. I would suggest that they are reading their own prejudices into that verse. For God's love is a love which is undeserved. It's a love which is unrestricted. It's a love not reserved for some kind of special elite. It's a love that knows no boundaries. And love is that quality of God, which is right at the center of everything that God thinks, and God does, and God is. What sort of love is that? It's a self-giving love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that caused Christ to allow himself to be overpowered by the human authorities and to be killed. It's a love that washed the feet of his disciples, even though one of them was soon to betray him. It's a love that enabled Jesus to resist 
calling upon the legions of angels to come to his rescue. It's a love that caused Jesus to cry out on that cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's also a love that never ends. We read of that love in Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul provides us with a whole list of things that might separate us. And he says, shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. And then he comes to his finale, and he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth. And just in case Paul missed anything out, he says, neither anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I just want to go, yippee, woohoo! I really do. And I'm sure you do as well if you were not so reserved. <laughs> wow! This is incredible. Did you catch that? That nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Not even death itself separates us from that, from God's love. And I suppose that that means that God does not love us any less one minute after our hearts have stopped beating and lungs have stopped pumping air around our bodies than he did one minute before we died. God's love is constant. And despite what some people believe, God doesn't pick daisies as some lovesick teenager, you know. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. They love me, they love me not. Because with God is, I love them, I love them. I love them. I love them because his love is an everlasting love. And that is why I believe C.S. Lewis told his conference that grace was unique to biblical Christianity. That is our trump card. It's our best message for a world which has been schooled in ungrace. I, I needed to look at it. Up, the dictionaries to find out if that was actually a word. We know the word ungracious, but ungrace. That, I wasn't sure about that. And it's actually a fairly new word in the Merriam-Webster um, dictionary, which means lack of grace, or even the opposite of grace. And you see, the values that are embraced in our world are the opposite of what we are talking about today. They are the opposite of grace. In our world, it's a dog-eat-dog society. It's a survival of the fittest. It's look out for number one. From nursery school onwards, we're taught how to succeed in our world of ungrace. The early bird gets the worm. No pain, no gain. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Demand your rights. But grace is the opposite of all of that. Grace says... That we did not get what we deserve. Grace says we deserve punishment, but we got forgiveness. We deserved wrath, God's wrath, but we got mercy. We deserve stern lectures, but we got a banquet laid out before us. We deserve to be called the enemies of God, 
But we have been welcomed as his sons and daughters. And I believe that this world in which we live is so desperate to hear this message. American author Ernest Hemingway tells a story about a Spanish father who had fallen out with his son and he needed to be reconciled to his son and his son had run away to Madrid. And uh, the remorseful father places an advert in the local paper. Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. And Paco is a common name in Spain. And when the father goes into the square, he finds 800 young men named Paco. All waiting for their fathers. There's an organization in Los Angeles... It operates an apology sound-off line. It's a telephone service which gives the callers the opportunity to confess their sins for the price of a phone call. I found that absolutely astonishing and amazing when I heard about that. But they are trusting their sins to an answering machine. And each day there are 200 or so anonymous callers giving 60-second messages. Adultery is often something that is confessed on that line, sometimes sometimes far worse than that rape or something else burglary, theft one recovering alcoholic left a message I would like to apologise to all the people I hurt in my 18 years as an addict the phone rings again, another woman sobs I just want to say I'm sorry and then she explained that she had caused a car crash in which five people died I wish I could bring them back You see, the world in which we live is a world which is crying out for grace. And as Christians, I believe that we need to be at the forefront in displaying what true forgiveness really is. Grace is the language of the kingdom of God. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. You see, that's the world's message. That's the world's message. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He caused his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's the message of grace. And if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is choose to be like your heavenly Father. He shows no discrimination and no partiality. That is grace. And that is the way that I want you to act too. You see, the world cries out for grace. But sadly, they don't always receive grace. They don't always receive grace from Christian people. Sometimes what they receive is ungrace. And over the years, I know in this place, from the front of the church, I've told a story, and I've retold the story, probably on many occasions. It's a story that Philip Yancey tells in two of his books in The Jesus I never knew and also what's so amazing about grace. He felt that he needed to tell that story twice and I just feel that I need to tell that story lots of times. 
simply because it is so powerful. He says that it haunted him and it has haunted me as well. It's a story of a friend of his who works with down and outs in Chicago. And this friend of Philip Yancey told of how a prostitute came to her in wretched straits. She was homeless, she was sick, she was unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. And through tears and sobs, she confessed that she had been renting out her daughter, just two years old, to men. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. She claimed that she had to do it to support her own drug habit. And Philip Yancey's friend could hardly believe what she was hearing. It was a sordid story. For one thing, it made her legally liable because she was um, required to report such cases as that to the authorities. Having no idea what to say to this woman, the friend asked, Have you ever thought going to church for help? The prostitute was astounded, aghast. Church, she said. Church, why should I ever go there? I was already feeling bad about myself. They'd make me feel worse. You see, the one place I believe that she could have received grace She felt that she couldn't go. And why was that? Because she feared that there were some holier-than-thou types who would look down their long spiritual noses at her and condemn her. She feared that she would be shunned by self-righteous, but yet good, morally good, or at least on the outside, people who seemed to have their lives all together. Of course, she might have been very, very wrong in her assessment. She might have turned up to church She might have been shown such incredible grace. She might have received such overwhelming compassion and mercy that it would have just changed her life, transformed her forever. But she feared that she would have been made to feel worse about herself. And that saddens me. Because that is the way that so many people who are not Christians view Christianity. They view the church. They see it as graceless, judgmental, critical, holier than thou. And I know, I know that that is not the case with the vast majority of Christians that I know who are utterly terrific and wonderful people. But sadly, those who are not Christians see enough ungrace to tar all Christians with the same brush it was Mark Twain who spoke of good people in the worst sense of the word and I think that's a a great description you see in Jesus day there were the Pharisees they were good people morally upright but in the worst sense of the word many of them high ethical standards of behaviour but yet not omitting much grace One little girl must have picked up on this behaviour when she prayed, Lord, make the bad people good and the good people nice. You see, in New Testament times, just like us today, you know, the world back then was crying out for for grace. And yet, so often, what they received was ungrace. 
from the religious community. Do you remember that story in John chapter 8? There was the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and the religious people, the Pharisees, brought her to Jesus and said, Moses commands us to stone such women. What do you say? It was a catch, obviously. There was no easy answer for Jesus to say, to come out with. It was a catch-22. If Jesus had answered, stone her, that's what the law says. That would have gone against everything that Jesus was. The message of grace and forgiveness that he taught. If he'd answered, free her. Then he would have got the the Pharisees off his back, yes. Or rather, Pharisees off his back if he'd said, uh, stone her. If he'd said, free her, contrary. He would have been accused as an enemy of Moses and of the Old Testament. He would have been in deep trouble with them. But what Jesus said was, he that is without sin cast the first stone. And again, we need to look at the contrast there. The contrast between the harshness and the condemnation of the Pharisees and that being compared to the amazing grace that Jesus showed. Neither do I condemn you. Go now, leave your life of sin. And you see, sadly, the world often sees ungrace when they rub shoulders with the Christian faith. They see finger pointing, they see critical hearts. They sometimes see sour and embittered people. Isn't it really interesting to note that many Christians are known for what they are against rather than what they are for? Isn't that interesting? John chapter 4 is another great story of Jesus showing grace. On that occasion, Jesus was at the well with a Samaritan woman. He met her at the well and uh, This was the woman who had had five husbands and the guy she was with now wasn't her husband. And in those days, in that culture, it was the husband who initiated divorce. And you see, Jesus could have had a conversation with her which was very different to the conversation that he had. He could have had a a conversation which says, you've made a right, right mess of your life. He could have taken the high moral ground and said, it's an immoral thing that you're doing, living with this man. He could have said shame on you. But what in effect he said was, I see you are thirsty. And then Jesus went on to tell her of the water that she was after, the water that she was drinking would never satisfy. But what she needed was living water that would quench her thirst forever. And that's what it means, I believe, to look with grace-filled eyes at others. To see others in the way that Jesus saw them. Instead of looking down our our, our morally superior noses with an attitude of disapproving. But rather say they must be very thirsty. Tell you another story of grace. Another true story. A story that um, Tony Campolo tells in one of his books. It's uh, a story of a friend of his who was an associate pastor in a large Presbyterian church in California. And she loved going to the Nordstrom department store in Bel Air during the Christmas season. This uh, female pastor, she felt that she couldn't uh, afford to buy much, a bit like us going to Harrods, I imagine, in Knightsbridge. It's great walking around the place, seeing the sights and the sounds, 
but you can't afford anything there. And it was the same in this department store. But it was at Christmas time and the Christmas decorations as ever were magnificent. On every floor there was live music. And on one of her visits she was on the top floor of the store looking for some of the finest dresses in the world when the elevator doors opened and in stepped a bag lady. Her clothes were dirty, her stockings were rolled around her ankles. She just stood there holding a gym bag in her right hand. It was obvious that she was out of place in this uh, store. She couldn't buy anything. The dresses there were $1,000 plus. And this bag lady didn't seem like the person who could have afforded that kind of money. This pastor expected the security cards to come and to promptly arrive and usher the woman out of the store. Instead of the security guards coming, there was a stately saleswoman. She came over and asked, may I help, madam? The bag lady says, yes, I want to buy a dress. She said, what kind of dress would you like to buy? The saleswoman asked in a very polite, dignified manner. The bag lady said, a party dress. Well, you've come to the right place, the saleswoman said. Follow me, I think that we have some of the finest party dresses in the world. The saleswoman spent more than ten minutes matching dresses with the woman's skin colour and her eye colour, trying to ascertain which dress would go best with her complexion. And after selecting three dresses, the saleswoman, uh, that the saleswoman deemed were most appropriate, She asked the lady to follow her into the dressing room. The lady pastor was intrigued and attempting really to get as close as she could to this conversation as possible. And the bag lady tried the dresses on with the saleswoman's help. And then after about ten minutes, the bag lady said sternly, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to buy a dress today. That's okay, the saleswoman said gently. But here's my card. And should you ever visit the Nordstrom department store again, I hope that you will come and ask for me. I would consider it a privilege to wait upon you. And as I thought about that story, I am convinced that's what Jesus would have done if Jesus were a saleswoman in the Nordstrom department store. You see, those who were classed as the dregs of society fled to Jesus rather than away from him. The worse a person felt about themselves, the more likely he or she saw in Jesus a refuge. That saleswoman knew full well that this lady didn't have the money to buy such a dress. And without a hint of sarcasm or mockery, she treated her as a person. Jesus said, Matthew 7, In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and prophets. David Watson, an Anglican vicar now with the Lord, once wrote these words. Love is is the one crucial mark of the Christian and of the church in the eyes of the world. The man in the street, quite frankly, could not care less about our doctrinal differences, our religious squabbles or our churchy debates. Most of these, he feels, are no more than verbal 
or theological hair splitting. So what's the difference? What's the difference between true faith and religion? The answer is grace. The answer is grace. We're going to watch a, a short video. I remember showing it some years back. It's a great video. It's a rap by an American by the name of Jeff, Jeff Blethke. Just sit back and enjoy this. I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision? I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever had a divorce, but in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might preach grace. But another thing they practice, tend to ridicule God's people, they did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems and so they just mask it, not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat. But it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now I ain't judging, I'm just saying, quit putting on a fake look. Because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. See, this was me too, but no one seemed to be on to me. Acting like a church kid while addicted to pornography. See, on Sunday I'd go to church, but Saturday getting faded, acting if I was simply created to just have sex and get wasted. See, I spent my whole life building this facade of neatness. But now that I know Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Because if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people. It's a hospital for the broken. Which means I don't have to hide my failure. I don't have to hide my sin. Because it doesn't depend on me. It depends on Him. See, because when I was God's enemy, and certainly not a fan, He looked down and said, I want that man. Which is why Jesus hated religion, and for it he called them fools. Don't you see so much better than just following some rules? Now let me clarify. I love the church, I love the Bible, and yes, I believe in sin. But if Jesus came to your church, would they actually let him in? See, remember he was called a glutton and a drunkard by religious men. But the Son of God never supports self-righteousness, not now, not then. Now back to the point, one thing is vital to mention. How Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do. Jesus says done. Religion says slave. Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage, while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man. Which is why salvation is freely mine. And forgiveness is my own. Not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserve. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while being murdered, 
He yelled, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. And he absorbed all your sin and he buried it in the tomb, which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it. Because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. He said, if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken. Very, very powerful, isn't it? Professor William Barclay once wrote, More people have been brought into the church by the kindness of real Christian love than by all the theological arguments in the world. And more people have been driven from the church by the hardness and ugliness of so-called Christianity than by all the doubts in the world. Again, a very, very powerful statement. Guys, if you'd like to come back, we're just about done here. So, what is unique and distinctive about Christianity? The answer to that is grace. It's our best gift to the world. People who are not Christians need to know of God's grace. But there is nothing that they can do to earn, and they don't deserve God's Love. There's nothing they can do. It's, it's free, it's gratis, but it will cost us everything. And it is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ.